It's The Chris Grace Show. I'm your host, Chris Grace. Thank you so much for coming back. My guest this week is Harrison Greenbaum. He is a stand-up comedian, a magician, a writer, a lecturer, and now, I guess we can add to the list, circus performer? Question mark? Harrison and I go way back. We used to cross paths in the New York City comedy circles back in the day, but since then, he has performed on Last Comic Standing, America's Got Talent, and now he is doing stand-up comedy in the middle of a Cirque du Soleil show. It's called Mad Apple. It's in Las Vegas right now. It's their new show. It's joyously overwhelming. It's a sensory experience that uh, I haven't seen in a while. I got to see it a couple months ago. I thought it was really, really fun. And in the middle of it is Harrison doing stand-up comedy for a thousand plus people that thought they were coming to see a Cirque show. It's a wild experience and he kills it every single night. Um, In this interview, we talk about Harrison's approach to developing new material and how he got into the Cirque show to begin with. And uh, we also talk about his uh, work ethic, his drive, and his openness to feedback. Uh, uh, And also he's got a pretty interesting story about um, when he slightly butted heads with Norm MacDonald, which is a clip that sort of went viral at the time. And uh, all that and more. Uh, As usual, I'll be rambling about my personal life uh, after the interview in the ramble. Uh, But for now, Let's get to our interview with Harrison Greenbaum. Okay, Harrison Greenbaum, welcome to the Chris Grace Show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I don't have it in this room, but my water bottle has a sticker on it now that says this is Harrison. Yay! (laughs) Uh, And it matches the, it's a light blue that matches the light blue of my water bottle. Goes perfect. I got that from you. Recently I was in Vegas and I got to see you perform in the Mad Apple show. Yes, Cirque du Soleil. Who ever thought? (laughs) Who would have thought? I, I... It was not on my list of uh, things I would do in my career is join the circus. Yeah, but you have and now you can never come back. Exactly. No backsies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> actually, you know what? That that brings up a very uh, a, a thing I've thought about you a lot over the years is that you seem very uh, high achieving. Um, and I wonder, in your life, have you had a list of things Harrison wanted to do or to achieve? I know that the, joining the circus wasn't on it, but are you the kind of person that ever like organized your thoughts that way? Um, yeah, I mean, I, the, there's not a physical list, like I haven't written it down. Um, but being an action figure, I don't know how it's going to happen, but as a kid, I always wanted to be an action figure in some capacity. I don't know if I have to be in like a Marvel movie for that to happen, but, uh, 12 year old Harrison wanted to be an action figure. Um, maybe a voice in a Disney cartoon. I love Disney. So that was always up there. I'm happy to be an anthropomorphic cat uh, or dog of some kind, um, or more exotic animal. Um, it's a pretty weird list. <laughs> this seems eminent, em, eminently doable. The, these, I mean, I think so. I fingers crossed before I die. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Kamel Nanjiani got to be a superhero in Eternals. Yeah. So it's, it, we can do he it. He also got jacked. I, I would not mind having, uh, I, I start, I'm, I'm trying to eat healthier now. I'm trying, I'm starting to work out. There's a gym The one of the benefits of being in a circus is that there is an onsite gym. So I, I, uh, I started lifting weights during some of the downtime and uh, they're like 15 pound weights. 
And uh, Valentin, who's one of our very strong acrobats, goes, these are for children. <laughs> oh, is he the guy that does the – does he swing the lady at the oh, end? Oh, no. He's actually the guy that um, takes his shirt off and does the the hand balance. Oh, my goodness. He's unbelievably strong. Good Lord. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, you probably are acquiring some healthier habits just by being around them because they seem pretty healthy – they're they're a healthy group of people. <laughs> I I got to meet yes, some of them. Although pro- the problem is somebody brings donuts because it's somebody's birthday, and I'm the only one who's who would even consider eating donuts. <laughs> so all of a sudden I have extra donuts. So that's no good. Yeah, that's true. Uh, just send them to me, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so so just just so people know what Harrison is doing now. Harrison is uh, a stand up comedian and a magician. Uh, we became friends in New York City back when we were in the trenches doing stuff at, you know, clubs and stuff around open mics in New York City, right? Now Harrison is doing stand-up comedy inside a Cirque du Soleil show. Uh, yes. For what? Twenty minutes? It's a it's a chunk. <laughs> but the, uh, the 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 short version was that I got a call on a Saturday. I was just flying in from uh, one of the Carolinas. Um, I want to say north. Uh, no, I was in Charleston. That's South. <laughs> I was in South. I, you know what? I knew I was going to get it in two guesses. I knew I was so close. Uh, <laughs> that's the kind of quick intelligence that got, uh, Harrison that's into right. Harvard. I think, <laughs> you know, in the application for Harvard, it's like, uh, how many Carolinas are there? Yeah. They're like, tell me about quantum physics. And I'm like, let's talk about string theory. And they're like, which Carolina is Charleston? in? And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> right. I guess I'm going to Yale. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> But uh, I, I get a call. I'm literally like going back to my apartment. I had been on the road for a bunch. And they said, hey, can you fly in tomorrow morning at 7 a.m.? Uh, we need you in the show at 7 p.m. So I was supposed to be there for one day. It was their first day of like live audiences because they've been rehearsing, but they hadn't had like an actual crowd in the, in the room. Uh, so I came in preparing to do one day. Uh, most of my training that day was because I was up, I appear in an elevator coming out through the floor. Uh, there's all this training on how not to die or be murdered by the elevator. Right. How not to have your limbs in in the wrong place. Oh, they show you all the places where your limbs should not be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so okay. So at this point, what have they told you your involvement is? So they 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 had told me it's Cirque du Soleil. It's called Mad Apple. It's a New York themed Cirque du Soleil show, and it's going to be the first Cirque show to ever have stand up comedy in it. Um, which makes sense because it's a show about New York, and if you're going to do a show about New York. And you want comedy in there. Stand-up comedy seems like uh, the way to go. Uh, so that, that's pro- basically what I know. I see the set. The set is huge and gorgeous. Uh, but I'm mostly fixated on not dying in an elevator. Uh, that I'm in a basement, so I can't even see what's going on <laughs> beyond me. Um, I, they teach me how to do it. Uh, I, I say, what stuff do you want to do? They're kind of like, do all of it. Let's see what you got. I go up there. Um, it's not a full house. It's like an invited sort of dress, more or less. So it's uh, like 100 or 200 people probably. I do the show. Uh, they say, hey, do you mind sticking around till Wednesday? And I say, okay. Uh, so till Tuesday. All right, I'll, I'll stick around till Tuesday. So all of a sudden now I'm doing this Tuesday show. Um, then they ask me to stay, stay to the end of the week. And then at the end of the week, they send me a contract to stay for more than a year. So basically I was kidnapped by Cirque du Soleil. I mean, this is like, Essentially. yeah, this is like you were on the 10 day contract for the NBA. You got into one game, you hit a three pointer and then they're like, we want you for the, you know, two more weeks. And then they're like, we want you for the playoffs and you're still in, on the team. It's incredible. 
Yeah, exactly. I don't know anything about sports metaphors, but I assume that tracks. That was all letter perfect, what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> I trust you. Yeah. I mean, and, and also now you're living in Las Vegas. Uh, right. So that was the other crazy thing is I spent my whole career in New York. I uh, It's where I'm most at home. And I built sort of my career sort of running around doing as many shows as possible, just from club to club to club, 600, 700 shows a year bouncing around. Um, and that was that was the rhythm I was used to. So all of a sudden, I had to pack up. I say I had to pack up my whole life. My incredible fiance, who was at home, did the uh, huge most of the work because um, I was already here. Um, the, I, I did those, that week of shows, had four days to go back to New York. And then as soon as I flew back to Las Vegas, uh, I, I, I lived in the hotel and then found uh, a place out here. So she, she did a lot of work getting the stuff over. But yeah, packed literally everything up and... Uh, First time really moving since college. Wow. I mean, so now you're in Vegas, you're doing Mad Apple, uh, which I saw I loved. Like I've I I can't even remember if I've seen a Cirque show live before. It might be the first one I ever saw. Oh wow. But I I sat in a seat that was like very close to the stage, so I was very kind of immersed in it. And I actually got to see audience react to you because of my where I was. Uh but like where I have to say where I was, the audio the music was the the overwhelming sensory experience of it was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and a great way. I mean, I also love, you know, I've watched a lot of Cirque shows, you know, on videos and stuff. I always love their sweet sense of naivete about like what they think New York city is. <laughs> you know, I love that kind of stuff too. I mean, and, and not even that ironically, like I just enjoy, it. I love that people came out and played basketball and, and there were break dancers. Yes. <laughs> Well, the funny thing is, I'm the only actual New Yorker. So when I came in, when I came into the show, I was like, "This is what like you guys need to have a bagel. You need to understand, <laughs> yeah, pizza rat. There's just the the overwhelming sense of uh, people everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's it's also weird to move from New York, be a lifelong New Yorker, and then work in a hotel called New York, New York, in a show about New York. So I'm basically living in a simulation of a hologram. Right, exactly. This is like a, a old style uh, virtual reality where we actually – it's like – this is like Truman's show style. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like being Mexican and then living in Epcot at the Mexico Pavilion. <laughs> right. Uh, and are you from New York originally? Yeah. Uh, what part? Uh, all over. So we the first couple of years I was in Queens. Then we were in uh, – then Long Island. Uh, and then I after college I was in Manhattan for 14 years. Oh, wow. Okay. So, um, and you, when I first met you, you were also doing a lot of magic, which I assume you still do. You actually do a little bit in the show. Yeah. Um, but then, so I, I knew you as sort of doing both. Uh, I remember I saw you for the first time at Parkside Lounge. Doing, oh, wow. Uh, and uh, I think there was a Jessica Simpson related moment in that or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you were doing sort of both. And then uh, I always thought... I was always very impressed and continue to be impressed, like I alluded to before, but like it seems like you're just such a relentless hard worker, which I both admire and resent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's exhausting. It's, I, I definitely think there's a sense of uh, – well, the best, the best way I can describe it is like being a drug addict. So I'm, I'm very much addicted to being on stage. And so on days off – like I, we have two days off a week. We do 10 shows, so five shows, two shows a day. And on the days off, I'm running around doing comedy sets in Vegas um, where I can. Um, and there's a point where, like, 
as I get older, I'm like, maybe my body can't necessarily take the wear and tear that happens from working seven days a week, uh, 52 weeks out of the year. Uh, so there is a toll for sure. I feel of two minds about that. One, I, I, I kind of recognize that, yeah, maybe you're pushing yourself to a point of burnout. On the other hand, we're doing stand-up comedy, which is uh, out of all the jobs that you could work <laughs> seven days a week. Yeah, it's probably one of the ones strategies. you could. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. Um, so then, but then I believe you made a, a pointed decision to do, uh, it was, it was America's Got Talent, right? Uh, I've been eliminated from all the reality television shows. <laughs> right. But you made a point to not do it from a perspective of being a comedy magician. Is that right? Yes. Well, I did Last Comic Standing first and then America's Got Talent as a comedian. Yeah. Okay. And, and this is like, you're not, uh, talk, talk to me about what the thinking was about, cause it's not like you've, uh, completely given up the magic side of your thing but you wanted to position yourself that way it's been a really difficult thing to sort of navigate i always joke that like when i'm doing a lot of magic it's always a grass is greener so if i'm doing a lot of magic gigs i can't wait to do a stand-up gig and if i'm doing a lot of stand-up gigs i can't wait to do a magic gig so it's nice to have this sort of back and forth uh when i was starting um the, the the sort of seminal story was i was still in college i was barking for stage time i was about to go on stage and basically it's two hours of barking and you get five minutes of stage time at the end of the show. Uh, so I, I'm about to go on stage and do my five minutes. I start putting sponge balls in my back pocket and one of the comedians spots me doing it and says, what What are you doing? Hmm. And I go, well, I want to make sure I have a closer. Like, the jokes don't work. I have this trick. It's gonna The audience is going to really love it. And he said, you'll never learn how to do stand-up comedy if you have this kind of safety net. Mm-hmm. And it had a really big effect on me. So for a really long time, I kept them totally separate. I think a lot of comedians... Didn't even know I did stand-up. And I wanted to sort of live or die by my stand-up. There was like a weird middle period where I had that uh, the baby trick, my closer, that I actually still use in Mad Apple, where I was doing that in stand-up. And I realized if I was only going to get 10 or 12 minutes on stage max uh, at some of these places, I couldn't devote five minutes to this magic trick closer. Mm. Uh, I just wasn't going to be able to work on enough material doing that. So there really was this sort of like clean break where I kept them sort of separated out. Um, so then when it came to like career opportunities, like America's Got Talent, it's that tough decision um, of which one to do. Um, and also it was like that weird thing too, where at some point I, I'd been, I still, a lot of my best friends since I was kids were magicians. I went to magic camp. So a lot of my like lifelong friends are magicians. So always loved magic, always around magic, even when I was doing tons of standup. Uh, and I'd always, I, I had, I have a lecture called You Are All Terrible. It's something I'd always been kicking around. And the joke was, Magicians are terrible because they don't create their own material the way stand-up comedians do. And I always felt like I need to put my money where my mouth is and build uh, a magic show that sort of uh, demonstrated the things that I had been, you know, telling magicians like, hey, you need to like come up with your own tricks and your own premises. And like there's no reason magic shouldn't be created in the same way as every other art form, which is from yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's no comedy store. There's a magic store that you can go and buy stuff. The comedy store is just a club. There's nothing for sale there. <laughs> uh, so there's that, there, all that stuff is kind of floating around. Um, it's a very long way to, to say that when America's Talent came up, I part of it also was calculated in the sense that they've had a ton of magicians on America's Good Talent. No comedian has ever won. So I thought it would be really, really cool. But more broadly, it was about sort of, I've always wanted to really demonstrate my stand-up bona fides. Um, and be like, hey, this is I can I can do an hour. When I when I work at the cellar, I, I always wanted no magic. It was just I'm gonna do stand up. I want to earn my way in there that way. 
And then later on, I, I became the first magic show they've ever had at like the Village Underground. Um, but it was only because I think I had earned earned that by showing that this is this is stand up comedy first, uh, and the magic is added as opposed to the other way around. Yeah. So you've been passed at the Comedy Cellar. That's uh, my home club. Yeah. And that was as stand up only. Purely stand up. Yeah. All the clubs were purely stand up. And then at some point, do you go to the Comedy Cellar and you say like, "Hey, can I do, you know." Uh, any card at any number tonight or something? Or like... <laughs> <laughs> no, so I've never done ma- – I, I never do magic in the actual, like, showcase shows. Okay. Um, they let you do sort of, like, headlining gigs. Um, and I had been touring my show for a while, and I thought, hey, it would be really, really cool to bring Harrison Greenbaum What Just Happened, which is, like, the 90-minute mm-hmm. show. Uh, I'd already been touring it for probably almost 10 years at that point. Um, and so I approached uh, Liz, and I said, hey, is it cool if I try a night? And so it was advertised as a night. Like, people were coming. This is This is a magic show. So it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't like they were seeing a lineup of stand-ups and they're like, oh shit, somebody just did a card trick. How do you think the other comics would react if you did a card trick in in a showcase set? <laughs> I think at this point they would be okay with it because I've they they know who I am. Like they we we they know that I, I'm not just using that as like a crutch. Um Right, right, right. But uh, and the funny thing is I think I feel like every comedian, um, the seller or otherwise, there was there's always this conversation they have. They find out I do magic. And then they come up to me like almost conspiratorially and they're like, just so you know, I know what nobody else likes it, but I love magic. <laughs> I'm like, That's so weird. Literally everybody else has said that. Right. So it's that weird thing where they, I feel, I feel like they're embarrassed to like magic. Um, so basically I, hopefully I can change that. So basically everyone at the cellar is gay is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and you were the conduit that united them all. I would be proud to be that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like the, I, I get like okay. So I have a couple thoughts. One is like I, I do want to. I'm trying to touch on this thing before, which is like you're. I think you're so. Um, you just seem so effective as a person. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it seems like it, my perception from the outside is like you have a lot of things that you want to do, and you find a way to like get them done. Even if this is like not even if Matt Apple was like not on your list of like. 10 years, 10 year list of, you know, your 30,000 foot list of things you wanted to get done. Um, but like, and you're sort of alluding to the fact that you might be like a little bit addicted to this work ethic. Um, like, do you, has it shown up in any like negative ways for you or, or like, is there a downside to that drive? Yeah. I mean, definitely like, you know, like the off days are a good example of like, it, you know, I, I'm in a relationship with my fiance. She's lovely. And like, I, I, there are days where I should take off and take her out on a date. And it's, a, it sometimes can be very hard. I have to, I have to like force myself to do that um, because of that, uh, that addiction, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the dates can't be like, like, do you want to come watch me do stand up? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. I don't think she's interested in that as a date anymore. That was maybe the first three weeks. <laughs> Um, but I think that, yeah, the effect is on the personal life, family stuff, um, you know, and, and it, it's it's also sort of compounded by the fact that our schedule is just not a normal schedule. We work, we're working, anytime people are normally working, we're not, and vice versa. We're, we're the entertainment for people who are working. So we're working on the holidays, we're working on the, so that, you know, that was always a, a, a struggle for me is balancing that, you know, personal life, family stuff and work stuff. So... I was also surprised from talking to you and talking to, uh, I forget his name, but the guy who's the juggler. Francois. I was surprised by how, 
by uh it seems like you have a lot of freedom inside the structure of the show uh yeah i mean definitely for the comedy section um they were kind of like this is your chunk and then like what you do the only rule is just you know get make people laugh as much and as hard as possible uh and that that was unbelievable like to have a company like that you know where they're, they they give you that trust and say hey we hired you because you know what you're doing and we want you to just make them laugh so being able to you know it's uncensored which makes sense with the new york vibe um and that 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 has been really really cool is every night you know going into my you know figuring out what i'm going to do that night in terms of my set um and that, and yeah it's it's really it makes it really exciting i come out of the elevator and it's always it's literally always a different show yeah that's incredible um i guess i was surprised by that because i thought a company like cirque would be uh, way more like precious about this is what we are and this is and we've got to like micromanage you at each point but even talking to francois it was it seemed like you know they hadn't really dictated a lot to him about what to do and the night that i saw it actually uh somebody else did like a uh diablo routine that was like a sub for someone else because someone else uh was injured or sick or something like that and it was seamless to me but i mean just fascinated to me that you're kind of like hey here's a slot you're a juggler. You're, you know what to do. Like do some juggling. <laughs> like, uh, I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Well, there's the, the interesting thing is they want to make sure that 10 shows are happening a week and it was something as physical and, uh, dangerous really. I mean, as, as this kind of stuff, like injuries happen. Um, so they come up with all these contingencies. Um, it's been interesting to see how that works in terms of finding out, you know, like one of the acrobats has this Diablo act that's incredible. And they're like, Hey, uh, and they can't just, you don't just put it in instantly. There's like this whole series of what they call validations where they run it and validate it with all the tech. Um, but yeah, the flexibility is really, really, really cool. Um, and it also the company itself is all about that, right? Like it's a, this is a company, Cirque in, Mo- in their Montreal offices, they have a on-staff office clown, <laughs> which I love. It's this lady, I think her name is Madame Zuzu. I hope I'm not butchering it. And she's on staff to just cause chaos and be a clown. And like, if that doesn't sort of encapsulate the level of just, we're a circus company. We want to be creative. We want to be free. And we want everybody to feel like they have that ability also. Um, I, I just love that. Actually, yeah, that makes, uh, that actually clarifies something for me in a way, because it seems like, hey, we're a circus company. We're not going to make a circus company and then ma- turn it into a corporation that's, button down the way that like that what is the point of creating a circus company if then we make everybody feel like they're doing a desk job right yeah and i think the offices like the actual like boardroom so if you come into to to the official meeting at circ headquarters there's glass windows and they overlook the basically one of the big places where the acrobats are training so while you're talking to circ people you're seeing people flying through the air and it's a good reminder of like, this is what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> how is the run going? Like, how, how do you, how, how, like, how do you feel it's going? It's been really, really fun. Um, the cast is incredible. The crew is great. Like, it's been, it's been really, really fun. It's, it's weird to not be traveling. Like, that, I did a, a one-nighter last week where I got to go on a plane, do a gig, and then come back. And I was like, oh, this, <laughs> this is my jam. <laughs> Um, so, you know, that, that part of like being sort of being in this sort of driving to work. I mean, the fact that I even drive to work, uh, it's all, all of it's new. Um, so let me ask you about criticism Sure. because I feel like, let me, first of all, I have a lot of notes. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
No, because, uh, again, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I perceive you as someone that will probably like accept feedback. I feel like you will, if someone wants to like pitch you something, you're open to that. But my perception of you, just because I've interviewed you before for like uh, my friend John Accardo and I, we had a magic podcast we interviewed for. My perception of you is that you're like, you're not, you're pretty skilled at like not taking it personally is my assumption. And the reason I asked this is uh, I was like, Oh, I saw my friend Harrison in Matt Apple in Vegas. And my friend was like, Oh, is that the guy that like Norm MacDonald yelled at? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's just, that's an example of a time that like, somebody pushed back on something that you had done. I didn't know about this thing, but in, like Harrison had a little on camera you know, discussion with Norm Macdonald about, I believe, your Harry Potter joke. Um, and I mean, like, what was it like to go through that? Yeah, that one was weird because it was a reality show. So what happened in the room and what aired on the show were very different. Um, so there was a there was a little bit of a frustration because what people were reacting to was not what really happened at all. Um, the, the short version of it is, so we had uh, Last Comic Standing, I do my set. Um, it went really well. Um, people were, uh, they had to basically be shushed from clapping. It was kind of cool. I was like, oh my God, this is, this is great. First two judges, they love it. Uh, Roseanne is going crazy. Uh, I'm like, this is great. Norm goes on a diatribe about religion. I had not, did not know he was a born again Christian. Uh, nobody had told me. I didn't know this either. <laughs> Seems like it like, he kept, Kept a lot of things secret. <laughs> yes, but you know, you could you could find some clips though where he's like on Larry King and like it's because of his delivery, it's very hard to know if he's ever doing saying something seriously or not. Uh, and Norm was the last one, and Norm st- was and still is a comedic hero of mine. Like I just I love his stand up. I love I love his sensibility. Um, that was unchanged by the fact that he he was critical of the set. Um, so I was excited to hear what he had to say. It was a very long diatribe about religion and um uh the, the audience booed him uh quite strongly during the whole thing uh and because i still had some jokes left from that chunk as he was as he was doing the criticism i was zinging back and getting these big applause breaks and roseanne was like losing her mind i'm like this is going to be really interesting tv <laughs> right and when it aired it was just one like long uh sort of rant from norm applause which didn't exist in the room and then me going like this. <laughs> so just not at all what happened. Um, so that was kind of unfortunate. And and some of the and some of the criticism was he was like, I don't think it's brave to make fun of religion. Um, and then sort of that that point was immediately um, undone by the fact that the conservative press went after me super super hard. Um, so you know the idea that there are no repercussions to that, and that's why it's not brave was immediately uh, proven wrong the second it aired. Um, and when and when he passed away, all that stuff came back up. He actually right. died on my birthday. Oh, that was a, that was his last present to you. <laughs> well, the, everybody, all the comics, because everybody, I mean, we we know comics. They're uh, we're all sick and dark. Everybody, I got all these birthday texts that were just like, "I guess your birthday wishes do come true." And I was like, "No." <laughs> Like, I love Norm. Uh, my last interaction with Norm, by the way, was very, very positive. Um, that was what was so weird about it, was that um, Norm, I, I don't know exactly. We know now more after he passed away of, like, what he was going through. And I think he was really going through, like, the worst of it during the taping. So it explains a lot. 
Um, but he, he, I think he often on that show, he didn't want to be there. Um, I think it was because he was going through treatment uh, based on the timeline. It seems like that might have been what was happening. Um, but he, I think also he got a kick out of the acts that the audience really liked, he was going to not like. Uh-huh. And the acts that the audience didn't like, he was going to love. <laughs> yeah. So he acted a little bit like a spoiler. Uh, and then we were both at Caroline's at the same time. Um, and we, I was the late show. He was the early show. So we like passed in the green room and he kind of like looked at me and I was a little bit nervous. Like, I don't know what he's going to say. And he looked at his friends and he goes, oh, this is Harrison. He's one of the best writers in, in the business. And then like basically walked away. And I was like, and it, it seemed very sincere. Like he, and so like, that was, that's my final memory of Norm. And uh, it was, it was interesting. It was just like, oh, okay, I guess. I, 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 I guess I won you over at some point. <laughs> at some point in this journey. I guess. Uh, yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, I don't know whether or not it's brave to make fun of those things. But I also think comics have this very, like, ever-changing relationship to whether or not we're supposed to be, like, you know, modern-day philosophers or we're just making jokes. It's like it, no one can ever, like, decide – are we, you know, court jesters really speaking truth to power or are we just, you know, goofballs, class clowns in the corner? And it always seems like people are just shifting from one perspective to another. It's like people can't make up their mind how important we're supposed to be. <laughs> well, it's also every comedian can make that choice for themselves, too. Like Steve Martin is is a different kind of comic than a Bill Hicks. Yeah. So they're and they're taking risks in different ways. But I think the, the act of doing stand up is is kind of inherently brave in the sense that you're going up there and you're saying, Hey, I'm going to live or die by my words. I hope you guys laugh. Yeah. I mean, it, it feels, uh, so I'm in the position right now where like I'm going from, uh, you know, I basically have like new stuff I've worked on since I got back into it a couple years ago. And it's like, I'm sort of in the transition from having about 20 minutes of stuff that I really like to, People asking me like, hey, do you have 45 minutes so that next year we can like shoot something? Um, And there's an element of bravery for me because I don't have that. (laughs) 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 Um, But also, you know, uh, it's like that weird thing of like, uh, now I'm at a point of like, wait, where do I go out and practice doing 30 minutes at a time? Like regularly, you know, I can go to a mic and do five or 10 even, but like, right. <laughs> you know, the, where is the, the, where do you get the reps? Cause I know getting reps is important, but getting, getting a rep of a 30 minute or a 45 minute set is different than getting yes. three 10 minute sets. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because uh, when I was in college, um, so I started the Harvard college stand-up comic society. So it's Harvard college sucks was the acronym. It's a long story about getting that name, uh, uh, through the through the administration and approved, but once we got it approved, we would send emails, also messages through MySpace because it was that time, saying like, "Hey, we would love for you to come to the Harvard campus. Uh, we'll give you a certificate saying, you know, here's you know here's an award from Harvard. It's from our group, but it's it's close enough." Um, and so Mike Birbiglia came on our campus, and uh, it was it was like eight of us, and we like sat around and had like cafeteria food, and he just gave us wisdom about what he had learned already doing stand up. And one of the things that really stuck with me was he always talked about stretching. He's like, if you only have five minutes, don't agree to doing a 45-minute show. But it's like the only way to learn how to do 45 minutes is to have 30 or 35 minutes and say yes. 
Uh, and so that really stuck with me of like, the only way to to grow how much time you can do is of it, you have to take a leap at some point. Um, so it's figuring out, okay, I have 25 or 30 minutes. I'm going to sign up for this 40 or 45 minute thing because I, I'm, that's the only way to, to see if I have it is to, is to, is to go for it. Um, so that there's that, that part. And that's an interesting perspective that that's an interesting perspective, uh, straddling between comedy and magic because we certainly know people in magic who have the same 60 minutes that they've had for 30 years quite quite literally and i'm not even sure that it it uh, not not that they should get punished for that but like i don't think there's really that much of a consequence in the world of magic for that it depends what they want to do um for me like i've been trying to really film that this 90 minute show i've been sort of doing it and refining it and, and, and tweaking it. I'm really hopeful that I get to film it this year and then burn it down. Um, film it, burn it down like a stand up, and start a new show. Um, I already have a few pieces for the new show. So I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to get to that. Um, it, it depends what you want to do. Like um, most of my heroes in magic, um, your, your Penn and Tellers, your amazing Jonathan's, your David Copperfields, obviously, um, they they generate a shit ton of material. And I think the reason they're so successful is because they generate so much. They can, if you only have that one act, once you do it on television once, it's really hard to make another appearance. So like, you know, you have all those guys um, putting out tons of material. They can keep making appearances. Their, their audiences can come back and see them again. Um, so I, I do think there is a downside to not generating new material. Um, it, it depends what you want to do. You have this goal because I think you've even ex- explicitly stated this. Like you have this goal. You had a, a goal of like this special. The watch what uh, what, what just happened. <laughs> watch what happens is a is yeah. a Bravo. Andy Cohen's producing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you had this goal of like you want to sort of film like a really good version of it and distribute that somehow. Um, and so, how do you think logistically about that? Is that a thing where you're like, hey, let me get some money and like shoot it myself? Are you looking for a distributor? Like what what do you where are you with that? And and sort of what do you how do you think about that like from a day to day? Yeah, it's hard. I maybe should think about it more. I it, it's basically about trying to find um partners and people who are interested in it. Cause at, at this point I would like to really make it a blowout cool thing. Um I, I think it would be really neat to have it be like large scale and like feel like a big production. Um, so yeah, this year it's about either finding the way to, to, to get it done um, with the help of others, or if, if I can't trying to figure out how I can bootstrap it, but um, I've, I've filmed versions of it. So I'm able to send people, Hey, this is the show. What do you think? Don't, don't you think this would be cool if it was large scale and uh, outrageous? Um, so that, that, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a weird process. Um, every time I think I'm close, I'm I. It's one one step forward, two steps backwards, and then somebody's two steps forwards, one step backwards. Uh, if I knew the secret, I would probably have a special. <laughs> well, and the reason I'm curious because uh, is that I feel like a lot of standups or, or a lot of solo performers right now are reckoning with this idea of there's a lot of people creating their own specials right now. Um, there's a lot of specials being released through traditional distribution, but also just directly onto YouTube. They come out to varying levels of success. Um, I mean, I've seen like Jackie Cation staycation was one of my favorite specials I saw last year. It went directly onto YouTube. And uh, to me, it doesn't have enough views for like the quality of the, 
the special. And then we know people who have put out stand-up specials and they have like 8 million views on them. So this, it seems like another evolution of the fact that like stand-ups and probably magicians as well have to be these like solo entrepreneurs and know, not only do you have to be able to create this content, be a, a performer. Now you also have to know like digital media yeah. distribution. <laughs> and making that decision, like, do you release, do you film the special and release it yourself? Or do you wait an extra year with the hopes that somebody with a bigger platform is going to release it for you? Um, it, it, it does feel like the wild West in the sense that like there, there, there used to be pretty like a, a handful of gatekeepers. And that was your goal was to get to those gatekeepers. Like before me, it was the tonight show, like when I was when we were baby comics, I feel like we all wanted the half hour special on Comedy Central. Like that was the the brass ring we were all fighting for. And now I don't think even the young comics know what that was or what that meant to us. And I don't know what the gates are now. Like I don't think um just from my experience with people who have done like Just for Laughs, um, it doesn't seem like it wildly opens the doors for people afterwards i mean it seems like a great thing to do but they're and i guess i guess that's the debate is like it's probably a good thing that there aren't three gatekeepers for the entire industry right exactly it's one of the reasons it was the lack of diversity probably yes yes for sure um but then it is also we feel a little adrift as to like wait what are we supposed to do (laughs) right uh well, it's like it's the difference between like a Super Mario on on the Nintendo and like an open world video game where you're like, I can just do anything. <laughs> exactly. And those fucking open world games, I don't like at all. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you're like, do you want me to just like get on a horse and ride for one hours in real time that, to that get is a such sword? A, this is such a good metaphor because in Super Mario Brothers, the original one, you could only go to the right. That's it. Yes. There, there's no there's no real debate as to where you're supposed to go in that right. game. And and if you can't get to the right fast enough or far enough, you just keep going. You keep working on it until you you can. That's right. And then you hop on a turtle a million times to get a million extra lives. Right. <laughs> and then you – I don't know if you ever did this, but on level one, two, you could go into the underworld like a secret door. Right. But those those like that secret thing in world one, it's like world one, level two, where you can like skip a bunch of levels. That's being a straight white man, especially in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, like I, I, I'm. Well, anyway, I'm fascinated to see where you go with this because, like, I know your show is great. So, like, it's not a question of like. <laughs> although sometimes doesn't it seem like now that's like one of the least interesting questions about this process? It's like, yeah, it feels like uh, before they really wanted data, and now they have so much data that the qual the, the one thing that they can't quantify, like we can quantify how many viewers, which demographic likes you. We can quantify what time of night people like to watch you. Like we have so much data on how and where and why people watch you. Um, but the quality is the only non-quantifiable thing. And so that that I think that gets lost sometimes in the data. You know, speaking of that, have you done any have you made any effort to like sort of figure out who your audience is or like or or to have you do you try to talk to them on any regular basis through like a newsletter or something or a Patreon, that kind of thing? I, I've been trying to be better about social media. Um, that's also one of the things where we talk about, like, my drive to do shows. I'm out there. My my whole goal has been do as many shows as possible, be out there working right. on stage. Um, I think some of my more successful uh, colleagues 
realize that some of that time is better spent like uploading clips, mm -hmm. uh, getting on social media. Um, so I'm trying to also find that balance too, because I, it, it is it is how you communicate with. Essentially, this is there's no there's no point in doing this without an audience, and so you have to build your audience and and keep them happy. Yeah, I mean it's amazing also that like that's what I think is so amazing about the gig you have currently, which is. Uh, I mean, you've put, probably produced shows or particular shows and you know sometimes there's the pain of like trying to get people to come see you. It's such a separate effort from creating the work to begin with. So right now, even if you're doing other shows around Vegas or whatever, you do have this like show 10 times a week or whatever where like, there's a bunch of people that are going to show up like, and they're from around the world. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's like the opposite problem, right? So it, it before it's like when I was right before the pandemic, I had done my first, I was doing my first small theater tour. Mm. And that was about people finding out who you were coming to see you. Um, so it was, you know, 500 people that were there to see the show, to see your show. And now it's 1200 people twice a night and they're shocked that you're on the show. They're like, oh, that's what you're doing. Yeah. They, they've never met me. I have to completely reintroduce myself, which is fine. That's basically what doing stand up in New York is a lot. Like at the cellar, they don't know who you are necessarily. This, they go, okay, I'm going to trust that the people on the show are good because of, you know, uh, so it's, it's an, it's a definitely a different approach. Um, at, but it, yeah, it's, it's, and it can be a challenge where people are like, oh, cause especially, if they've seen all the other Cirque shows, stand up. This show is is different. Um, there there isn't no there is no other show where there's going to be this kind of stand up comedy, yeah. or curse words or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, have you dealt with anybody, or have you been exposed to anybody being like, "Hey, like this is not what I came to a Cirque show for. I didn't come to see a New York stand up comic. I want to see I want to see a young girl chase a red balloon across. I right. don't know, <laughs> you know." <laughs> You know, the the good thing, that was my fear going in. And I also was really, you know, I, I really enjoy Cirque. I'm a big fan. Um, my my whole thing was also making sure, like, I, I didn't want to, like, I wanted to make sure that, that, that I was helping maintain that Cirque level of, you know, highest excellence. Um, so there was, I think, a more fear going in. And now that we've done the show for, I think we're almost at show 300, the, the vast majority um of people that are coming really, really like what, what they're seeing. Um, and I think, I think they're, they, the, 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 I think most people are finding it refreshing. I think that's like the sort of common refrain is that it's cool to see Cirque do something a little bit different. Um, and so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm relieved that people are, are taking it in the spirit that it is intended, which is Cirque being like, Hey, we also do this. Um, and so that's kind of cool. Well, also between the, uh, the guy who like sort of MCs the very beginning of the show, um, between him and you, I didn't expect Cirque du Soleil to sort of allow people inside the show to sort of gently make fun of the show as well, which I, I think that's refreshing. Yeah, I, I, that was something – some of the stuff we don't, didn't realize that we were doing – like we didn't realize what we were doing until we did it. So like, you know, there's a, a bit where I, I get into an audience member's lap and I have them introduce the next act. And – I. It wasn't conscious, but I realized in 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 O, for example, there is a guy in the audience. I, this is a spoiler, so if you want to see O, maybe skip ahead. Um, but basically, they bring a guy up to introduce the show, and then he gets ripped up. He's actually part of the cast. It's, it's uh, he's a plant, 
Um, and in, in, in our show, this guy is not a plant. He is absolutely a real audience member. So it's like kind of tweaking the formula in interesting ways. Um, and that was unconscious. Like that, uh, it was just, it was that my, I wrote the bit based on some other bit that I had, um, uh, which was, uh, I was working with a, a sign language interpreter and, uh, it was a whole bit about, oh, she has to sign everything I have to say. Um, and so that I was like, how do I, how do I capture that feeling? And I was like, oh, we can make an audience member read a cue card um, and see see how crazy I can get that card before. Let's see. Let's see how far we can take this. Um, so that, that that's kind of cool. And then, yeah, being able to comment on the show. I don't think there's any other Cirque show before that's ever commented on itself. So that's been kind of really fun. And like as a comic, it's sort of a no brainer. Like, of course, we're good. We, we want it. We want the audience to realize that we're authentically there with them. So, of course, we're going to comment on what's happening. But it is so interesting that, yeah, in 38 years, this is the first time you have a performer in a Cirque show talking about being in a Cirque show. Um, the act that you were talking about where the, the sign language thing, was that a stand-up or was it a magic thing? So that was, it ended up being like a very viral TikTok. It was like a viral YouTube video that became a viral TikTok when I repurposed it. Um, but I was on a show for the Center for the Hearing Impaired. Um, and they said there's going to be a sign language interpreter. Um and I spoke to her, bef- you know, before the show and she was basically like, literally anything you want to do, like I'm game, like there's nothing you can't throw at me that I probably haven't heard before. Um, I do the show every year, like, you know, go for it, balls to the wall. I was like, great. I really appreciate it. She's an awesome lady. Um, so as I'm doing my set, the bit is I go, hey, so I don't know if you know the difference between cats and dogs. Hey, this is the sign language lady talking. Uh-huh. If you're listening to the comedian, he's still talking about cats and dogs. But I just want to take a moment to let you know that I want to fuck the comedian. Yeah. It's taking everything in my power not to just throw him down and ride him like the Jewish stallion that he is. <laughs> I'm living out all my – and just like a long, long rant where she's talking as herself. Yeah. Uh, so that that was the sort of bit that I was like, is there a way to capture this Uh in the show. That's fascinating because I, I think I need to think back about the timeline when I was in Vegas this summer because I was in, I was in Vegas for world series, world series of comedy. And then I came back for the laugh after dark festival. And the reason I bring this up is I ended up doing an alt. Uh, I was in the quote alt show um, without really knowing why, like none of us really knew why we were put in the alt show. Cause we had just <laughs> submitted regular standup clips just like anybody else. Um, but because of that, I decided to do an alt, like a, a kind of bit you would have done at like uh, on, I forgot the one in New York City, like if it was <clears throat> like a Luna Lounger, that kind of thing. Okay. Um. So, but I ended up doing a thing where I couldn't do my act and at the Laugh After Dark Festival, they had official alternates for the show. <laughs> so I had a friend of mine who was an alternate and I called him up and I handed him index cards and he did the rest of my act. Um, and I wrote him some things that were like uncomfortable for him to say or whatever. And I wonder if I was like subliminally like ripping off your mad apple set. (laughs) I don't think I was, but you know, yeah, (laughs) I don't think so either. Uh, but it's funny because like when you talk about the alt stuff, like, uh, the Andy Kaufman awards, like that was one of the first like major things that I entered when I was in New York. Mm. And I was so glad because like that, that to me is alty. Like that's that, that alt scene. I mean, do you feel like it's still. I feel like when we were starting, the alt scene was really strong. And it was like, that was like a, people were sort of branded that way. Like, this is an alt comic. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that that boundary exists anymore. I think that sort of like alt alternative music and indie music, these things sort of get absorbed into pop. And then they don't. And they, they sort of oscillate between, 
you know, this is a real alt thing. And then to truly be like an alt vibe, you have to be a little, you have to go a little further now, probably. Because right. um, like a Julio Torres, like his HBO special, that's alty. Yeah. Like that's for sure alty. For sure. I mean, and like Gerard Carmichael, Rathaniel is like, is, is something I wouldn't be surprised to see. Like, for example, he, Gerard Carmichael did his new work in progress out here in LA at the Elysian. And the Elysian is where I think a lot of what we would have considered alt stuff would be like Kate Berlant does stuff there. And, um, but I don't, back in the day when we were seeing like alts, like when I would see, let's say like David Cross do something at pianos back yeah. in the day. Right. That wasn't, yeah, that wasn't something that we would then like be able to like turn on our cable television and see. Whereas right. now you can see like, Kat Cohen, Kate Berlant on Netflix. You can see Julio right. Torres on HBO. So I don't know. Maybe there's, you know, I mean, honestly, on some level, probably some version of alt comedy is like, in a way, like almost that whole like Skanktown world is like kind of alt in a way because it's like so anathema to like what we're considering like proper acceptable stand-up comedy like in a way i don't know i mean you probably being at the cellar you probably have more interactions with people in that world as you get closer to like uh you know the the rogan creek in the cave type world it's all i mean i'm sure it's all spectrum by the way i actually don't think there's like hard lines between these groups right um well that was the weird thing was on one hand i was doing like the Andy Kaufman funhouse stuff and being like, and, and doing loving and doing all the alt stuff. Um, and then doing clubs and kind of oscillating between the two and seeing where could I do the same act in both? Um, and there was like that time I remember, I think it was, <laughs> I, 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 there was another comic. He was joking cause he was doing like an indie Brooklyn room. And he's like, I figured out the secret to getting laughs in an indie Brooklyn room. He was like, I do the same set I would do at the cellar, but I pretend to read it from my notebook. <laughs> okay. And it was like such that felt feels like that encapsulated that moment of time. I feel like I'm pretty confident that I can go in front of a bunch of civilians and make them laugh. I'm not super confident that I can do that with cool hip rooms. <laughs> That's also a, a fact, a function of age. Like yeah. I mean, I when I especially post pandemic that was cuz that was such a big jump in time i started doing the indie rooms and i would be in brooklyn and queens and i was like oh my god i'm the old i'm older by 10 years by than most of the audience members here and that was not always the case yeah uh one thing that has happened to me this has only happened to me twice in sets that i've done in sort of more indie rooms is um if i say something about like you know, my, my, my parents are Chinese and like they never hugged me or something like that. Um, sometimes there's almost too much empathy <laughs> from the crowd <laughs> uh, for them to laugh. Like, you know what I mean? Like they, right. they go into sort of like they are too, they want to take care of me too much. And it's almost like, <laughs> no, 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 this is just this. I, this is the premise for a joke. <laughs> like, right. Uh, I don't know if you found that at all. Yeah, I guess I guess the shift might have been it, it was it felt like the shift originally was format like they wanted to see I felt like some of the alt stuff was like unpolished and experimental like this guy is trying something he doesn't know if it's going to work. And now it's more uh, not political but like there yeah there's that set that the em- the levels of empathy are different. Yeah. Actually that's a great point. I think that um 
first of all, I love alt stuff. Like, and I, and I, I've always, you know, wanted to preserve that stuff. And, and sort of along your point, like you kind of need with that kind of work that there has to be a a night where like you see 10 people and two of them just tank. Like that's gotta be part of it. Um, And so I think there's a distinction that we can still find now between um, alt indie that is truly pursuing that, which I would totally encourage. And in terms of it being incorporated into what is like pop stand-up comedy is like, are there rooms where it's just stand-up comedy, but the like lang the the vernacular has to be adjusted so that you speak a slightly different version of the language that is acceptable? And I'm not really even talking about PC stuff, but like the way you the way you navigate topics, there's like a different way for like alt rooms than there is for the comedy store, let's say. Um, but that's not necessarily a room where you're everybody's like taking a risk. Yeah. I mean, that was what those rooms were for. It was like, Hey, the clubs where you like tried to make money and you were performing for like commercial, like it was very much a commercial thing. And then you would go to the, you know, a room in Brooklyn and it was, yeah, it was about trying new stuff and seeing where you can push things. And that was, that was the excitement. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, how do you feel about the fact that like, it seems like comedy and maybe comedians have a shelf life in terms of relevance. Um, <laughs> Well, I think you can I think you can beat it. Like I think Sarah Silverman has managed to stay relevant for a really, really long time. I think part of it is adjusting with the times. If at any point you go, you know what? I'm I'm done adjusting. <laughs> and there are comics that have done that. Like I do, what I do works and I'm gonna do it for my fans, and my fans are gonna age with me. <laughs> and so there there definitely you there there are there's a track to do that. I I hope that never happens. I think I think it's how you surround yourself, like who you surround yourself with and what you know that that willingness to continue experimenting it becomes harder to experiment the more successful you get i think yeah luckily i don't have that problem yet um (laughs) so i we you talked a little bit about your magic heroes but who were your sort of comedy heroes growing up yeah well the funny thing is i was a magic nerd so if you took 12 year old harrison and you said name your favorite performers they're all going to be magicians probably cardini (laughs) yeah exactly um my my big comedy influences as a kid, uh, two thousand year old man on cassette with Mel Brooks and oh uh, Carl Reiner. I wore that thing out in my grandmother's Volvo. That thing was <laughs> like peak, like perfection for me. Um, I love that. I had Adam Sandler's uh, CD of sketches. Uh, that was pretty great. Um, Amazing Jonathan was sort of my toe into stand up because he was really kind of in both worlds. Um. And then once I really like immersed myself in stand up, like George Carlin, um, Andy Kaufman, Richard Pryor, Joan Rivers. Um, Joan Rivers is like she's definitely on the Mount Rushmore. I feel like people always say Pryor and Carlin, but like she's she's gotta be up there. Um, and then like your Dick Gregory's, like Mort Saul, um, all those guys. I got to work with Dick, which was wild. Um that was one of the coolest just uh, I got a call from Caroline saying, do you want to open for Dick Gregory? And I was like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, yeah. Uh, uh, by the way, I want to clarify that Harrison is younger than me. Um, yes. <laughs> but these references are. <laughs> so I was an itty bitty baby when I opened for Dick. Um, I would say like, how, how, how often as a child were you told that you had an old soul? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it was because I, my grandma and my dad were like, oh, you want to watch the funniest thing ever? And we would watch Blazing Saddles. Like that was, that was what went on the TV. 
So that was at Mad, 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 Mad World. That was my big one. My grandmother loved, it was two VHSs. You had to put one tape in and then it would say, put the second tape in because it was so long. <laughs> right. And uh, oh, that doesn't it have Buddy Hacken in it? Yes. He's my favorite part, I think. That face he's making in the plane. It has everybody in it, though. It's unbelievable. I, I feel like I know a lot about how comedians sort of find their voice. I know a lot less about how young magicians find their place aside from just like, hey, here's this thing you learn. it. Like, it doesn't seem like finding your voice is like a central thought with young magicians. Right. That's the problem, right? So the the, the, the you are all terrible lecture is literally, uh, that, that's a big part of it is um, because you buy your material, it's most, I would say 95% of magicians are doing material they didn't come up with based on performances of other people with lines they didn't write. Like it's, it's a cover band. Um, and so I, I'm sort of trying to like raise a fist and be like, no, 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 that's not the way to do it. Um, yeah. that's not, a, if you want to be a Beatles cover band, great, but you're just, you're just not the Beatles. Um, it's, it's maybe the difference between art and craft. Um, <laughs> I, I, I might've cheated a little bit in the sense that I think I found my voice doing stand up. Like I was doing a lot of stand up, and that really helped me hone my voice and then adding the magic in and keeping that voice. Um, so I think that that helped me quite a bit. Um, so if I didn't have that, I, I'm not sure what I would have done. Um, but it, yeah, I'm I'm when I'm at Magic Camp and I'm I'm mentoring the younger magicians, I'm constantly asking them about who their character is, who they are, and a common refrain I have is uh, a a person who does magic tricks is not a character. And too often that's and the other there, there's two ways to look at it. Either a lot of magic acts are just I am a magician. And that's that's literally the only character. Um, the other way that I've spoken about it is at the end of a magic show, what can you tell me about that person? Who is that person? It doesn't mean you have to know the actual person. Like you can be a character. But if you see a stand-up special, you know who that person is. You might even know sort of what their beliefs are or you might know about their family. You you kind of know, you know something pers- deeply personal about that person. Uh, in some way, or or their character, if they're not playing themselves. Um, uh, sorry, you could also, if you see a stand-up set, then I could show you, like, two jokes on paper afterwards and be like, which one of these jokes, like, fits this person? Yes, 100%. Uh, the other test is, can you do an impersonation of somebody, and then somebody else can say, oh, I know who you're doing. Right. Um, I kn- Like, we could certainly do that for, like, Zabrecki, or, uh, like... Yeah, or Matt King. It it's very easy to do an impression of Matt King because it's such a strong character. Yeah. Um so it uh, uh, this resonates with me because I sometimes w- when I when I think about like the creative stuff I've done, I'll think of like, oh, you know, I can do I'll I do a lot of improv. Uh but I also can like sing, so I do musical improv and or I I do stand up whatever. And a lot of it, it ends up me being like you know what? A lot of people do what I do, but here's this like little distinctive thing that I do that's different than other people. And what ends up happening is, yes, I do feel a little bit distinctive from other people, but I've also over the years often felt like, oh, I don't really belong anywhere. <laughs> um, and I wonder when you were a kid, were you a kid that like you felt like you belonged in groups easily or did you feel like not part of that? No, I mean, I think I think maybe 
I think maybe one of the reasons you become a comedian or performer is because you're seeking the approval of others that you might not have gotten in your childhood. Um, that might be overreaching a little bit, but yeah, I felt like I was always, I, I wanted to be liked. Um, but it was weird. I mean, I was, I was a goody two shoes, like very much like school comes first, very much a nerd. Um, but, and drama club was like a release. Like I loved being in musical theater and I love that. Um, when I got to college, I made a very conscious decision because I was the only person from my high school uh, or really from my area going to my college. So I was like, pretty much nobody knows me. Uh, nobody knows who I am. If I want to reinvent myself, this is the time. And so I went into college being like, I'm going to be a much more social person. Uh, and so that, that, that was a pretty, dis that was like a clear choice. Um, and I think that, so, so maybe not in middle school or high school by college though, I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to parties. I want people to, to like, be like, oh, it's Harrison. We like Harrison. He's cool. Um, and, and, and so like that, that was definitely like a choice that I made going in. Um, and by the way, did you try to write for the lampoon there or like, I don't know the world. You know, I started too late. Um, you're not allowed to join the Lampoon senior year. And so by the time I realized I should join the Lampoon, it was my junior year. So I really only had like one shot. Um, and they, they don't usually accept you on your, they make you do it more than once. Um, I got really close. Um, but uh, one of the reasons I, I'd already been doing my stand-up group. Um, I think there was a couple of reasons. <clears throat> I don't know why I didn't get taken. I, it could also just been, they don't like my stuff. Um, but uh, I was, I was, I was writing for Mad Magazine at the time. I had interned and then I was freelance writing for them while I was um, in college. Um, there was, there was, I remember when I worked for Mad, one of the guys was like, uh, I tried to get into Lampoon and I was writing for Mad and they they, they don't love that. Um, but I, I don't know what the reason was. I, I think it was really a blessing in disguise because it, it made me focus on standup. Um, and then after I got out of college, I would email people that were people in the Lampoon and they still talked to me. It was, you know, they were still happy to to help. Um, so it, it would have been really cool to be in it. I'm sure I would have enjoyed it. Um, it just wasn't part of my experience. Plus, you would have been, you would have cashed in all those Simpsons checks all these years, and it would have just yeah, it would that's have, what we're talking about. It would about. have yeah. jaded you. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see the sliding doors version of my life where I did make it in. Yeah, it was significantly different. Then I'm really gonna get pissed. <laughs> I don't know if like I'm just totally wrong. Like I just see you as just like a such a confident person. I don't know if uh that Oh, I am so neurotic. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very anxiety pro neurotic Jew. That is uh I when I'm on stage, I I always talk about like be, the on stage version of me is like the Superman version. Like I'm Clark Kent. Like when I'm when I'm on stage, I I that is the version of me I wish I always was. Like, super confident, nothing in you know, that, uh, not just going for it. Um, but offstage, absolutely. I, uh, for sure, sure. Not that. Um, and so like, uh, what's your sort of process now for like, if you want to, how often are you doing new material or how often are you writing stuff and does it make it into the mad apple show? Yeah. Um, I usually will do the new material on like my off days, at like a club in town first, just to make sure it works in some capacity before I throw it into Mad Apple. The Mad Apple audience, I think, is a little bit. It's harder to test brand new material because it's they're they're expecting you to just hit 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 hit. Um, but I I will definitely work in new material. Like I'll do it like three or four times, or maybe uh, spend a month working on it on the off days, and then boom, it's in the show. Um, so it's but I'm always writing and 
Uh, also, just for finding the bits that are in the show, like finding little lines here and there, which is really fun, or coming up with a new bit to do here. Or uh, the the fun thing about being in a show this long, I've never been in a show, like a single show this long, is like even that intro card bit. Like, um, there's a callback that I now do in another part of the show that I came up with and have refined, and like you can really find these small moments. And so that also is kind of exciting is making sure there's something new every single show whether it's a big moment or a small moment. This is this is my experience when I did like a tour of a musical. It's like shockingly to me, none of the audiences were ever the same. Yeah. Like I was never I could never be like, "Oh, this is one of those audiences." Like where I was like, "Oh, they laughed at this joke, which means X, Y, and Z, they're going to have these reactions." It was always like surprising every single time to me. Yeah. Well, that's what that's what makes it exciting. That's what makes it fun. If it wasn't that case, I don't know. I, then I think it would get pretty boring because you're like, it, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the, the adrenaline rush of jumping out of a plane and being like, all right, let's see what happens. Yeah. Now the other downside to that was I realized after a while was like, oh, I have to keep physically showing up for this to receive the benefits of this experience, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, which is less optimal in my uh, mind. Um, what have you been excited by anything lately in terms of magic? Um excited about um i mean that's a that's a very good question <laughs> the, the answer is no <laughs> yeah no there's always new stuff coming out like um uh, the thing that i'm always most excited about is the trick that i'm working on like that that's always keeps me going is like i'm working on this new thing and you, uh, i'm working on one thing can't super talk about it but um it is very exciting. Um, so that 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 is something that I'm excited about. Um, this is where you go into a water tank for three days. Yes, I would love to do <laughs> my dream, and I'll say it. I I don't. Uh, my dream in the, in Mad Apple is that when I appear the second time, I I really do a set. Um, there's a there's that subway door. I walk through like subway doors. My dream is to descend from the ceiling on an everything bagel. <laughs> okay, like. If you picture like Miley Cyrus on the wrecking ball, but it's me on a bagel. Love this. And I come from the ceiling and I just say something like Shabbat Shalom, motherfuckers. This is my very real, not exaggerating dream for this show. I don't know if they'll ever find the money, um, energy or desire to do it, but that is my dream. (laughs) By the way, on the shelf behind you, uh, there's like seven books in a row over your, what I think, yeah, that side. Are those card college? This is so. This is fun. This is Tarbell. Oh, those are Tarbell. Uh, volumes one through eight, and my book, which I swear will come out. It's it's been crazy. I finished writing the book basically two years ago. It's just getting it out and getting it published has been uh, more challenging than anticipated. Um, but when it does come out, um, it will look like Tarbell Volume Nine. Ah, okay. And for people who don't know, Tarbell is like um, sort of these... Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, <laughs> right. Of like, like if everything you wanted to know about a certain category of tricks, is, it'll be like, get number three for this. Or And it's fun because, I mean, I especially noticed it during the pandemic because everybody would zoom in and you would see there's a lot of bookshelf shots. And so I realized every magician pretty much owns tar- all the volumes of Tarbell. They usually display them all together. So I just thought it'd be really, really funny if... The people who buy my book have a nine. So their set is slightly more complete. And it won't say Tarbell. It'll be like Terrible instead of Tarbell. But is that going to incorporate some of the thoughts from the lecture? Oh, 100, that's 100% what it is. So I, I, I did the whole thing backwards. So most people, when they do a lecture tour for Magic, um, they write the lecture notes first, and then they kind of tour it. 
and they sell those lecture notes. And that's one of the main ways they make money is selling those lecture notes. And that always felt a little bit backwards because I I have that like stand-up mentality of like you kind of put it in front of people and you refine it based on on the reactions. And so I... I, it, I didn't make very much money doing the doing the lectures because I had nothing to sell. Um, but I I did the lecture URL terrible for years and years and years and kept refining it based on the feedback that I was getting. And then once I reached a point where it felt like, okay, I think I have it, that's when I decided, okay, now it's going to be a book and that's how I'm going to sort of, uh, oh no, just preserve it. The word was preserved. <laughs> that's exciting. I didn't know a book was, was, was on its way. Yeah, URL terrible, the book. One thing I would like stand up to take from the world of magic is I do think it's a it's a little more collegial in terms of like sharing knowledge and experiences. Um, I mean, stand ups are very collegial in terms of just like hanging out, uh, which also I'm not good at. But <laughs> like, there's certainly a lot of progress to be made as a stand up by just sort of like being that, but being around. Um, but there isn't so much an equivalent of like the, in magic, there's a world of like, there's a lecture this Sunday. Well, what about a magic convention? Like, I, I wonder, I don't know if it would be successful. It probably wouldn't be, but like, what would a comedy convention look like? A stand up comedy convention? I thought about this. I mean, I, I think one difference is, is like, there's a smoother spectrum between magician and hobbyist who spends a lot of money on magic. Right. <laughs> uh, and there's certainly this gigantic industry of, I mean, the industry is mostly driven by those hobbyists rather than the actual magicians. Um, and so there certainly are comedy fans, but the, I don't know how many of them are also like people that would sort of see themselves on the road to being a stand-up comic as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I would love to go see like, someone experienced talk about like, I would love to see someone talk about like, this is how I went from 15 minutes to 45 minutes. Right. You know, And that's sort of like, just for laughs is the closest thing we have. Or like any of those kind of like festivals are the closest thing we have to a stand up comedy convention, but none of them have that like educational component. That would be super cool. Yeah. Most of them have a, a sort of industry element. That's like, this is what you should have when you like reach out, there's like, if you want to do an electronics press kit, this is what you should have. Um, but not so much even knowledge sharing about like just the work itself. Uh, yeah, it is weird. Like I, I, I would love to hear more. I've started to ask people a little bit more being like, what is your process? Like, how do you write jokes? Cause everybody has their own process. And I, there is a hesitance, I think for people to share it. Not like they think it's like some great secret, but they're kind of just like, why do you, Everybody just everybody has their own process and they figure it out on their own. But it would be useful to figure out like, oh, like like I remember Joe Mackey showed me this thing where he like he would draw like a circle and then do spokes based on a topic. And I was like, Oh, that's a really cool exercise. I I, I wanna try. Um and just hearing different things like that, even that kind of simple stuff where you go, Oh yeah, that that could help my writing. Um I think there is some mysticism that stand-ups hold about uh, the process in the sense that like, for example, this is my personal pet peeve is that stand-ups are so strident about why you should never take a class in stand-up comedy. And to me, I'm just like, it's just knowledge that can be related from one person to another. And you, then you pay them a dollar. That's all a class is. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, if you buy someone a drink at the club after they're set and pick their brain about how they did got to where they are, that's basically a class. Like, right. You know, 
but there's this there is a stigma about like you should never take a you know, don't take a class just go to 3000 open mics and then, right you know. Well, I always say a class can get you the class can get you to a certain level. Like if you've never done stand up, a class is useful. At a certain point, the rubber has to hit the road, and you have to learn by being on stage. But they can you can you can take some of that pain of like learning how to take a mic out of a stand and where to put the stand when you're done. Like if somebody wants to teach that to you, so you don't have to learn that by doing four shows. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you if I can pay a hundred dollars to avoid or to like more quickly learn the lessons that I would have learned over three months, then yeah, I probably will do that. Um, yeah. Do, so do you see yourself as more a sit down and write or a write on stage kind of person? Uh, it's a combination. So I like to sit down and write. So I kind of know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And then once I have like, uh, once I have something, some kind of clay to work with, then I can go on stage and I let the, let the audience sort of tell me like, oh, that really resonates. That thing that you think is funny is not funny. Mm-hmm. This part actually is funny. You didn't even think that was funny. That's what you should focus on. And then you go back to the computer and you focus on the things that they're like, that the thing that, that the things that connect. And how good are you at listening back to your tapes slash video, watching your videos or whatever? You know what? I have a, I have a relatively good system, I think, at least for me. Um, Cause what I realized when I started out, I thought the homework was I have to listen to every set, every single second. And that becomes a lot. Um, and you start to hate your own voice and you hate your own joke because you've heard every joke 600 times because um, you're just listening. So the idea was every time I record every single set and then as soon as I get off stage, I put in, I, I put the name of where I was and then I put in parentheses all the new things, all the things that were different. Because I can remember right after I get off stage what I did different. Maybe an hour later, that knowledge is probably not there anymore. Right, right, right. And this is your noting it in the title of the thing? In or? the title of the track. And then oh. on the drive home now because I have a car, but like, or in the subway, I can fast forward to all of those new chunks that I need to analyze because something has changed. Gotcha. That's yeah. uh, You know what? I'm stealing this. I love this. I think, yeah, that, that's it's go for it. I think it's a tip that people should use more. Yeah, because I, there is a lot of like uh, sifting through the like, wait, is this the one where I mentioned the thing? Or, you know, a lot of times I feel like you're going to grab like, what's that little off the cuff thing I said that I want to expand, except I don't remember where it is now. Right. And also I, I started to develop um, like a little system within a system. So like the way I write the things in the parentheses is a shorthand. So like if I put an exclamation point, that means you phrase it in a way that you probably should memorize. Like you said it in the right way. This is something you should write down. Um, or if I put it all in caps versus I put it in lower, like there's different things for me to give because there's all different sort of things for me to pay attention to. Like, hey, look at that riff. So I I, I, I literally will write like under, under, I'll say the name of the joke and then riff. Because <laughs> there's like that, that there's new things to listen to here or the phrasing is what's important or whatever, whatever it is. So, yeah, I don't know if you ever played chess, but basically sometimes you're putting an exclamation point to be like, that was a great move. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. That's, that's pretty close. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. We can wrap it up. I love, I love the show. The Mad Apple show is so crazy. The amount of energy, the, the, the music is incredible for that show. Oh my God. The musicians and the singers are un, unreal. So on top of all that, then it's also Harrison doing like really funny stand up in the middle of it. And on a night that it's going like amazingly well, 
Um, you do. You said you do two chunks, right? I would, I do four. I have four appearances in the show. Okay. On a night that it's going really well, like what does it feel like when you're leaving the stage the, for the fourth time? Uh, a little bit of, if, if it's going well, I should be exhausted. I, I want to feel like I've literally left it all in the field. So I should feel tired if I did it right. Um, it, it is, it is surreal. It is really surreal when like you take a step back and you go like, I'm, I'm headlining a show in the Las Vegas strip. Like that was, that was little, little Harrison listening to Mel Brooks, watching amazing Jonathan. That was the dream. Like I saw Stephen and Roy when I was a teenager, like headlining on the Las Vegas strip, that would be amazing. Um, so it, there is that. There is a sense of like there is a surreal nature to it, uh, where it's just like I can't believe this is happening. This is this is so cool. And you are three hundred shows in. Does it start to feel normal? Does the surreality of it start to feel typical? It does. It doesn't ever feel typical, and I I do really work hard to try to feel like every show before I come up the elevator, I get excited. Um, and remind myself what I get to do. Um, cause you, it is easy to shift into that, like, uh, to make it feel like an office, you know what I mean? Like a corporate, like you check, you sign in and you go, all right, the costume's on and you say hi to your coworkers. It could feel, you don't, I don't want to ever feel like I'm in office space, you know, like that. So you do have to do a little bit of work to, to remind yourself of what's, but like, as you were saying before, every audience is so different. Like every time you go out there, it's, it feels like a, a win because you're like, I get to do this thing that I love. The people who are producing this show, like the works and Cirque were, you know, had enough trust in me to let me do it the way that I want to do it. Like, I, you know, that that's a miracle. Like that I can do that. Like the fuck you card trick. I get to do that in the show. Like that's awesome. Um, there are not that many magic shows that will let me do that just because even, even just because it has the word fuck in it. Yeah. <laughs> let alone do it for 1200 people twice a night uh, with their branding on it. You know, like it's, so it, it, I, I do really, it hasn't faded yet. So maybe, ask me at show 600 if I still feel the same way. But at show 300, I am still unbelievably grateful to everybody for, for the opportunity. Uh, Christmas 2023, we'll do another recording because obviously December 25th, you don't give a shit about. Yeah, so. let's do it. What happened, what's on <laughs> December 25th? Um, Harrison, what is, uh, how do you prefer people to sort of get in touch with you or follow what you're doing? Yeah, um, my if you want to go to the show, uh, madapplelv.com. Highly recommend it. Um, madapplelv.com. You can get tickets, uh, all the information. And then I'm at Harrison Comedy uh, on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, all that stuff. Um, and harrisongreenbaum.com is the website. Yeah, this is what I'll say about Mad Apple is I'm a very critical person. I'm a very cynical person. I lived in New York City. I'm very sensitive to portrayals of New York City. Uh, I'm not saying it's the most accurate portrayal of the, of the city. However, I think I might've told you this, but that show like basically hurtled over any of my cynicism about like, well, that's not really how it is or whatever, because it's, it's so exuberant and on a, and like, in, from my perspective, a little bit silly, but in a, in a way that's very earnest. Yeah. Um, and and then in the middle of it, you have Harrison doing some really funny comedy as well. Like it's so it's like it's got this earnest, naive quality about like what New York City is. And then there's a little bit of like, you know, brisk water in the middle of it. For- yeah, gritty New York realism. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I thought it was super enjoyable. I love seeing uh, uh, what I perceive to be like 
a bunch of like Europeans dunking a basketball. <laughs> I guess three of them are Hungarian and with yeah. uh, two Hungarians and uh, a Bostonian. Yeah. So not, not an actual New Yorker in there dunking a basketball, but yeah. they dunked it anyway. They dunk it real well. And by the way, on the night that I saw the guy do the sub Diablo routine, it was insane. Like they told me afterward, it was a substitute act. And I was like, I can't believe that guy just has that in his back pocket. for Right. <laughs> you just see their training videos. So these guys go to like trainings all that, like most days and they'll upload videos on like their Instagram. Of, like I'm just fooling around in the gym and they're doing just un- unreal stuff. Yeah. I think you should put out your, uh, your parallel videos of you just at the computer being like, yeah, exactly. They're, they're, they're literally hundred feet in the air, like doing flips. And I'm like, Ooh, is there another joke I can write about turtles? I'm really feeling a turtle chunk coming along. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, go follow Harrison. He's amazing. He's funny. Please go see him in the Mad Apple Las Vegas show. Uh, Harrison, thank you so much for being on the Chris Grace show. Thank you for, for having me. And anytime you're in Vegas, you're always uh, more than welcome. I'd love, I'd love to, uh, to hang again. Thanks, Harrison. Thank you for listening to my interview with Harrison Greenbaum. I think you might have realized if you've listened to a couple of these episodes of The Chris Gray Show that uh, I really like to grill people on their exact process, the nuts and bolts on how they generate material of any kind. I am just always interested in that kind of stuff and always looking for tips and tricks to steal for my own process. And the idea of actually quickly notating what stands out to you from a recording uh, is a really smart one to me because I have in my voice memos on my phone, I've got right now probably like eight sets that I've done of stand-up comedy in the last couple weeks that um, they all look the same to me. They're all time-stamped. There's no distinguishing uh, information on those recordings that would let me know, hey, this is where I could find this little tag that I added or you know, even last night I did a set uh, in Culver City and I thought, oh, there's a different ending to this one joke that I improvised one time. And uh, now I don't know what it is. It's it's on a recording somewhere. Definitely. So I haven't technically lost it. Uh, but uh, boy, I wish I could have somebody just log all of my audio for me and tell me what I did that was good. <laughs> uh, hey, so, uh, you know. I've been talking about my own life after the interviews um, in a section that I like to call the ramble. And I thought, you know what? This needs a little theme song. So I went to look for some uh, stock uh, royalty-free music that could apply to this section. And this is what we're going to do. This is the ramble. Yeah! (laughs) Okay. Well, that's uh, a royalty-free logo ident music from uh, Envato Elements, a uh, fun little playground of a whole bunch of things that are not quite exactly what you want, but hey, anyway, this is the ramble. Um, so I am now officially pretty, like, again, 99% officially going to be doing Edinburgh Fringe this year. I definitely will be talking about this on the show. Uh, we'll be doing some kind of Kickstarter at some point, but basically the current status is I am doing a solo comedy show at Edinburgh Fringe this August, every single day at 1.40 p.m. Uh, this is this is the 1% that we still got to get this in written confirmation form. But I believe 
at this point, I will be doing it at 1.40 p.m. every day in the Assembly Studio 5 venue. Very excited about that. I'm also going to be doing uh, Shamilton, uh, which is uh, a Baby Wants Candy musical improv show and the official Baby Wants Candy show. And I'll be doing a stand-up comedy with my friends from Laughing Stock. Uh, so currently, this is what the schedule might look like. It might look like 1.40 p.m. solo comedy show, uh, 5.20 p.m. Uh, Shamilton, which is a an improvised Hamilton-style rap improvised musical. F- uh, that's 5.20. 9.05, I believe, is Baby Wants Candy, which is a more um, wide-ranging kind of can-be-any-show, any kind of style or subject that we want musical improv show. Uh, and then I think 10... 10 is laughing stock, the stand-up show that I will be a part of as well. So, um, there's going to be a number of four show days for good old Chris and, um, I'll tack on shows somewhere else as well. You know, appropriate that I'm talking about this on the Harrison episode because I'm not a New York city comic. I live in Los Angeles, but you know, New York city comics, they're often doing multiple sets a night, three sets a night, six sets a night, 30 sets a night. 700 shows a week or something like that. And uh, that's what fringe is going to be like for me. Um, Also got a little bit of disappointing news about my uh, software engineering. Um, As some of you might know, I've been doing an online uh, sort of software re-entry type course just to re-familiarize myself with software engineering because um, I want to add some stability in terms of health insurance to my life. Um, And the program that I'm in, it's an excellent program. I recommend it to anybody that is interested. It's called Launch School. Um, and I'm in what's called the core curriculum, which is a self-paced part of the curriculum. You go at your own pace, right? Well, there's a big second part of it called Capstone that is not um, self-paced. It's, it's uh, as they say, synchronous, where you've got to be in the room with other people on a Zoom for about three months. And it's a very intense program, but they do help you with some pretty uh, incredible um, job placements at the end of that. They have a, a really high rate of job placements and really good salaries. Uh, majority of them remote. It's like a pretty good situation if I want to keep doing acting and comedy because um, of the ability to do a lot of work during the day remotely and then, you know, travel and do comedy and all that kind of stuff. Sounds great, right? Well, um, the main issue is that the capsule program is, uh, there's only three a year. Uh, they just started one, I believe, and uh, the next one starts in May. I won't be done with the core curriculum in time to apply for the May one, but I will be done with plenty of time to apply for the August one. Unfortunately, August is also when uh, Edinburgh fringes, and in the grand scheme of things, I have to prioritize my creative career over my software engineering career. So... The bummer is that Fringe only overlaps with the beginning of this capsule program by um, seven days. Uh, so I sort of asked, like, hey, can I miss, you know, can I, can I, like, I could move things around and maybe be at one or two of the initial seven days, but I can't be at all of them. And the main issue is time zone. I actually, you know, you can carve out time at, in Edinburgh to work on remote projects. Um, but the main issue is that I'll be eight hours ahead of their schedule here. And the, the capstone program mostly meets 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. So, and that's exactly when all my shows are in Edinburgh. Now I could carve out one or two nights off from some of these shows and participate in this capstone program, which I told them, but they felt like I can't miss, 
you know, five or six of the initial week and then try to join the program late. Um, so the bummer is that I was really kind of fast tracking all of my self-paced work to, I was originally trying to make this, um, May capstone, um, because I kind of knew this August conflict might, might keep me from participating in the fall. So now the bummer is like, I've been going pretty fast. I've been absorbing the material pretty well. A lot of it is um, a more in-depth review of things that I've already worked on before, but now like it's very possible that the next capstone that I can participate in is in January, 2024, which is, that's a, you know what? That is a, a more adult way of looking at the world than I have ever looked at it. I I've never, you know, all this stuff actually is more, uh, competent slash adult than I have been before the idea of, Hey, I have, it's February. Um, you know, last week I interviewed Stacy Horn and she was talking about how she has a book she's writing that they want to publish in 2024. She needs to finish it by fall of 2023. And to me, those kind of timelines are very foreign to my way of thinking. Uh, this idea that like, I have a show in August, I need to write and, uh, polish and I need to prep for a software intense program that might start January, 2024, like 11 months from now. That is a very, uh, not the way that I've lived my life, uh, up to this point, <laughs> you know what? Maybe I would have health insurance if I had lived it that way. So anyway, that's, what's been going on with me. I'm still excited about the program. I, I still like, um, I love all the stuff that I'm learning. It's just, a, I will, I, to be totally candid, it sort of took a little steam out from me because I was like, oh, you know, I could at least, I don't know. I just, I'd never thought about, I don't think I've ever encountered this notion of like, hey, yeah, you can do it. Uh, you can do it uh, a year from now. I don't know. But hey, that's the way the big boys roll. You know, I remember a long time ago, um, I saw an interview with Yo-Yo Ma, and he was talking about how his schedule, they were like, how far out booked is your calendar? And he was like, 18 months. My calendar, like I know what gigs I'm doing for the next 18 months. That sounded crazy to me. But that's me. I am the Yo-Yo Ma of comedy. Listen, I would love if you joined the community at club.chrisgrace.com. That is absolutely the best way to get in touch with me and to talk about the show. Or you can send me an email at podcast at chrisgrace.com. Uh, this weekend, I will be in San Diego uh, Friday night, 10 p.m., performing at the Mic Drop in a show called Love Bombed. Uh, Saturday at 8 p.m., I'll be at the Westside Comedy Theater doing some stand-up there. And just a reminder, I will be in Houston, Texas in March, I believe 21st through 24th for the Riot Comedy Festival. Uh, please come out and see me there if you are in Texas. Uh, okay, great. I think we had a good one. We all learned something. I hope you have a good day. I'll see you next week and you'll be hearing from me very soon. You've been listening to The Chris Grace Show. Today's episode was edited by Eric Michaud and produced by Chris Grace. The opening music is Easy Cooking by Boom Opera and the closing music is Chinese Hip Hop by Alexander Rufire. You can get in touch with us at podcast at chrisgrace.com or join the community at club.chrisgrace.com. This has been The Chris Gray Show. I'm your host, Chris Gray. Thank you so much for listening.